Section 15 of Vagabond Adventures. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Vagabond Adventures by Ralph Keeler. Book Two. Three Years as a Negro Minstrel. Chapter Five. The Last of the Booker Troop. In the course of time, the Booker Troop was disbanded, and Ephraim, as well as ourselves, was in green room parlance out of an engagement. I never saw him or Lynch afterward. Mr. Edwin Deves, as I have intimated, is an industrious maker of woodcuts and painter of transparencies and theatrical illusions in San Francisco. He was the gentlemanly middleman and baritone of this company. I never met him professionally after our disbanding. He went to California, I believe, with the late Samuel Wells, in the same troupe with Messrs. Birch and Bacchus. Deves was a very handsome man in the old days of our association. His jet-black hair never required a wig at that time, except when he desired to personate some terrible impresario in burlesque opera. Then he would invest himself in one of buffalo robe, and would roar with such unexampled fierceness that our tin horns would ring again with the mere echoes of his powerful voice. He was a man of great versatility. I would not like to say exactly what he could not do, from the invention of a patent soap to the plotting of a new pantomime. The words and music of some of the most widely known of the old negro melodies are of his composition. But as I saw him last, with his large family around him at San Francisco, it was evident that if he should ever go back from his present contented, peaceful life into the checkered uncertainties of cork opera, he would have to wear a wig unless he confined himself exclusively to old man's parts. His hair has long since faded, and he would, I fear, have also to use a tin horn himself to produce the startling echoes of his whilom unaided voice. With Mr. Neeland, the violinist and musical director of the Booker Troupe, I traveled subsequently in two other companies. As I shall have no occasion to mention him again, I will say here that he was a quiet, modest sort of fellow who had a remarkable talent for sleeping. That man could sleep at any time and in any place. If he happened to be forgotten in the hurry of changing conveyances, which was not infrequently the case, he was sure to be left snoring in some waiting-room or crouched down among the cushions in some railway coach with his violin-box for a pillow. He alone always played for my jigs and hornpipes, and as I used to get a side-view of him on the stage, with his eyes shut and his heel beating the measure of the ecstasy which at such moments travelled, for instance, the rocky road to Dublin, away up into the cirrus heaven of the octaves, I was more than once impressed with the annoying belief that he was asleep, or soon would be and that I should have to complete my grand finale of wings and shuffles to the uncertain fugue of his snoring. Whether he ever did fall asleep or not on the stage I cannot tell for sure, but asleep or awake he always managed to keep better time than I did. He practiced de Berio's seventh air for six months almost constantly in his room, never, to my knowledge, venturing to play it in public. Now his room was generally the next one to mine, and I have often wished, after three or four steady hours of de Berlioz, that Mr. Neeland would fall asleep, 
yet by a strange fatality he never did unless there was some likelihood of his being left behind nevertheless neeland was by all odds the best-natured and the most substantial man of the booker troop he is now i hear the thrifty and honest possessor of a goodly farm in wisconsin where he lives with his wife and children of late years it is only when the crops are poor or the monotony of rural pursuits leaves him open to the temptation that he abandons his plough like another sturdy cincinnatus to give his services to the public then for a brief summer he will it is said sally forth to lead the brass and string band of some circus or menagerie to the conquest of bucolic or urban ears and fractional currency after a whole season of ovations in which captive elephants and camels and lions or superb bandwagons and grand entries and bareback equestrians have moved to the time of his music the honest neeland goes back to his cows and sheep and domestic hearth and is happy johnny booker still lives i meet him every few years in the most out-of-the-way and unexpected places he confines himself now i believe exclusively to the circus or menagerie business one or the other branch of this style of tent life seems by the way to be the ultimate refuge of your old showman the last stage of his worldly transmigrations some seasons i will come across mr booker in the very heart of this continent convulsing a rural community with the sparkling manner in which he will answer as clown to the conventional this way mr merryman ask the young lady what she will have now at other seasons and on the remotest rim of our territorial possessions i will be astonished to recognize him in the magniloquent ringmaster who inflicts the lashes upon the painted clown and who acts the part of the greek chorus explaining the jokes of that amusing fellow in the choicest doric of our language i have even known him to deliver a moral and instructive lecture on the nature and habits of the elephant in a grand combination menagerie indeed it was his custom every afternoon and evening to discourse on this branch of natural history when i last met my old friend and instructor in minstrelsy he took great interest in his elephant and especially in a living hippopotamus which was the ruling attraction of his establishment just as he had once i am bound in gratitude to say taken great interest in me my place as his pupil was just then usurped by a small irish lad whom he pointed out to me in an expansive feminine wig of flaxen curls and in puerile tights and tunic with a most formidable gold foil battle-axe in one hand and the american flag in the other personating as mr booker assured me a water-nymph on the silver-scaled but somewhat shaky chariot of neptune this imposing car of the sea-god i need scarcely add formed part of the procession as it entered town headed by the elephant the living hippopotamus and a brass band seemingly on the point of death so red and distended was the face of each strangling musician and so nearly did each appear to have poured through the mellow horn his pensive soul the procession was still passing the balcony of the hotel on which we were standing when mr booker confided to me very gravely that his present pupil did not give him satisfaction he will never be a performer said the thoughtful veteran 
"'I don't know what I can make of that boy, for,' pursued Mr. Booker, with his mind evidently more upon his pupil than upon me, "'for I don't think he is even fit to write books.' My former manager at this moment became so suddenly absorbed in the contemplation of a large spot on the very masculine tunic of his charge, the water-nymph, that he did not notice how frank he had been with me. It is due, however, to the magnanimity of Mr. Booker to say that, whatever may be his private opinion of literature and of my change of profession, we are, and I hope always shall be, the most devoted of friends. Whenever we meet he is sure to startle me with a new batch of reminiscences of our old-time companionship. What puzzles me most is that, as he advances in years, his accounts of my youthful exploits grow more extended and apocryphal. He has long since in these narratives got out of the horizon of my memory. I would not for the world accuse my old instructor of a want of candor, but I must say I think he has confounded me with other and later of his pupils. It would be as useless as ill-mannered to contradict him, for he has told these stories so often that he believes them implicitly himself. Any unbiased mind, moreover, will find excuse for the treachery of his memory in the devious and exciting course of his subsequent life, as Corypheus of the sawdusty ring, and especially as the zoologist of the living hippopotamus, and as the moral lecturer upon the manners and customs of the elephant. I shall, however, in closing this account of the Booker Troop, give a couple of condensed samples, which will, I think, of themselves, explain why I indulge in no more of Mr. Booker's stories about myself. I give them as a simple act of justice to my old comrades. Having related my reminiscences of them with great freedom, it is no more than fair that one of them, at least, should be heard against me. While admitting that a boy of thirteen may not have all the discretion in the world, still I herewith enter the solemn protest of my memory against the facts of the following statements. Mr. Booker says that in the course of our travels we came to a city where I had relatives, and that I took occasion, as the best means of impressing them with my prosperity and independence, to appear in a different suit of clothes as often as I visited them, which was two or three times a day. He furthermore relates with appalling circumstantiality that at a select hop after our performances in some quiet little city, my attention was attracted by a very pretty young lady who seemed to be the belle of the evening. With the interested swagger of a young blood of thirteen years, I asked who that fine girl was. I was told that she was a certain Miss So-and-so, whom, for the sake of Mr. Booker's story, we will call Miss Brown, and that she was of a very respectable family in that city. Now it happened in the course of our wanderings that, from motives of curiosity, charity, and advertisement combined, we always visited the state prisons which chanced to be in our route, and sang and played to the prisoners, generally while they were assembled at dinner. And I may add here, by way of parenthesis, that never elsewhere have I witnessed so wonderful an illustration of the power of music as greeted us on such occasions. Hundreds would change from laughter to tears and from tears to laughter again, as the song or strain was merry or sad. 
two or three weeks before the time of mr booker's story we had he says visited one of these prisons and we had all become very much interested in the case of a handsome young fellow who had just been brought there for some crime committed while under the influence of liquor as soon as i heard the young lady's name i remembered all about this unfortunate young fellow and especially that he bore the same surname and came originally from that very town although he had been convicted in another state i found by inquiry that she the handsome young lady and life of the whole company was the sister of the criminal it was very plain that she had not yet heard of her brother's misfortune then according to mr booker's account i obtained an introduction to her and boylike in the honest but inconsiderate delight of being the first to bear her news which she doubtless would want to hear i said miss brown miss brown your brother's in the penitentiary the young lady swooned of course and was borne home by her friends mr booker always adds at this place that i ought to have been taken out and thrashed an opinion in which i should agree heartily if i did not doubt the truth of the whole story End of chapter 5 The Last of the Booker Troop